So it's rather lovely to walk into this retreat and uh, as he mentioned on the opening night as teachers in this retreat we uh, kind of come and go and it's quite different to uh, arrive here um, as opposed to if I've kind of been here like on a regular retreat just uh, really an hour ago I drove down from London and uh, that sense of sort of whizzing along the motorway and uh, and then just slowly arriving and just feeling the sense of getting home and uh, seeing my cats and uh, tuning in, turning my attention towards uh, being here with you and speaking some, meeting some with you. And so there's just that sense of a journey that we go through in so many ways, isn't there? Arriving. The journey that brought you here, the journey that brought me here physically. The journey that brings us here in each moment. That sense of returning, reconnecting, coming back into or entering into this moment, this place that we are. And all that that holds for us, all that that offers to us in terms of the opportunity for practice, the opportunity for clarifying the heart and mind, for opening the heart and mind, for deepening the heart and mind. And so there's this journey we go upon. And we can look at it in lots of different ways. One of the features of it that we is that feedback or some other noise I'm hearing? Well, it doesn't bother me. I'm just kind of curious. Well, maybe a little. But is that okay? Can, we st- can you still hear at the back with the volume? Okay, good. We've been working on this uh, sound system recently and uh, having some uh, improvements to it. But it may not yet have been uh, refined completely. So, in terms of this journey, in terms of this coming back into, entering into life, one of the features and one of the significant elements that arises, perhaps more noticeably at the earlier part of the retreat, or maybe we could say also in the earlier um, time of practice, But equally, that turns up, in fact, at any time or potentially at any time in our meditative journey, in our spiritual journey. What we call in the the tradition the hindrances. And I actually, when I say we call it, actually that's what lots of other people call them. I actually don't like the word particularly. I tend to uh, use the word challenges, though referring to the same thing. And so what I want to speak about this evening is meeting the challenges practicing with the forces and energies that we encounter in our journey that make us make it hard for us to connect, to enter into, or to sustain our connection with where we are, with the present moment, with the potential that it opens or that it offers to us as a place to abide and as a, a source of transformative understanding. 
And it can be that when we have been practicing for a few days, as uh, many of you have been now in in the context of this retreat, though I know some of you for longer, it sometimes seems like our mind can be filled with challenges, with difficult conditions and and the Buddha spoke of what we call, or are traditionally called the hindrances or the challenges, spoke of these as uh, things we need to really address, we need to look at. But it's important, I think, to frame them and to understand them in a larger context. Because when the Buddha spoke of the mind, he didn't just speak, of course, of the difficulties and the challenges, but he also spoke, or the, the particular energies that we have to learn to work with. He also spoke about the, we could say, the greater perspective or the deeper understanding of the mind and expressed it in many different ways. But the way I'd particularly like to refer to or to to speak to briefly is when he said, and rather famously and perhaps quite often quoted, he said, this mind is luminous. This mind is naturally radiant, pure, shining. And we hear that and we might think, that sounds nice, but it doesn't sound like this mind. Maybe his mind. He says, this mind. He's not speaking about his mind. He's speaking, this mind is luminous, naturally radiant, pure and shining. And it is afflicted by forces from without or forces that come from outside. That sense of it being afflicted, perhaps we recognize that, the sense of different things arising in our experience, within our mind, heart, body, life, meditation, that challenge us, that it seems cloud the natural luminosity, our ability to recognize the the radiance and the purity of the natural awakened mind. So these forces, these conditions that arise within our experience need to be investigated, need to be understood. And most helpfully, from the perspective or from the understanding that they are something that come in They're not inherent. They're not the core, fundamental, underlying nature of the mind. That's not to say that sometimes they don't manifest as if they were, because it might seem like that's mostly what's going on at times when we're caught up. And and I imagine you know the names, and I'm pretty confident you also know the experience of the different hindrances. We talk about craving and grasping, about uh, aversion and fear and anger. The second, we talk about restlessness and agitation, about sleepiness, dullness, and sloth or torpor, as it's sometimes called, and uh, also about skeptical doubt or undermining doubt. These are the uh, classical labels given to these five particular energies, and we know them. And I want to speak to, the, to speak to them specifically in a, in a few minutes. But uh, initially, just that sense of to see these as something that comes in to our experience is really useful because when we see that it's something that arises we're less like or it comes in we're less likely to believe that it's somehow permanent or fixed we're less likely to relate to it from the point of view of something that's absolute or solid 
Because when we do that, we're much more likely to react, either identifying with it, believing in it, or rejecting it, struggling with it, trying to make it go away. And those two ways of responding aren't actually that helpful, aren't generally that useful. So seeing that uh, these experiences arise, they come to us, and they pull us. They have this sort of like this, this force, this pull. Well, I was driving, uh, driving down the motorway this, uh, this morning. I was reflecting on hearing uh, Joseph Goldstein speaking about this metaphor that he has that's rather lovely. Joseph, as probably you mostly know, most of you know, but Joseph's one of the senior teachers in this uh, insight meditation tradition. And um, he was speaking about seeing his sort of practices like driving down a motorway and, and then seeing the service, the big sign for the services, you know, entertainment, food, sort of all these nice things and sort of pulling off the motorway, going into the services, spending all this time wandering around the shops and in the end thinking, oh, oh that's right, I was going you know, to New York or whatever and getting back in the car and driving off and then not long later another something grabs him. And it was quite a kind of interesting metaphor to be reflecting on with regard to the hindrances, kind of being pulled off our track, being pulled away from or somehow losing contact with. This is what happens when we're caught in and we lose contact with what our deeper direction, our deeper intention is in practice. And that sense of being pulled out by it. And yet, at the same time, we also need to recognize it's not just about disregarding the services or disregarding the experience. I'm trying to pretend it's not there because maybe, as was happening and I was reflecting on this, well, two things, one thing was getting empty and another thing was getting full. And I realized I needed to fill the thing that was getting empty. That was my petrol tank. And I needed to empty the thing which was getting full, which was my bladder. And just noticing how, thinking, well, I'll just keep going, I'll just keep going, kind of not, not really wanting to be disturbed in my journey and my sort of heading home by those necessities. Um, I kind of left a little bit too late and when I finally got there and uh, the tank was quite low and I was filling the fuel, the moment I started squeezing the pump, you know what running liquids does to your bladder when it's really full? It was like, <laughs> I wasn't sure I could hold it for long enough to fill the tank. And uh, so it was kind of a, just a, reflecting on the sense of what happens if we don't attend to things that arise in our experience that might look like they're a distraction or a, um, something in the way, you know, having to take care of the practical. And, uh, and yet there it was. And fortunately, you know, I managed it without an accident of either of the two that I could imagine involving a misplaced uh, fuel nozzle or anything else. Um, and so... Then again, you know, one uh, gets drawn out, pulled off, whether giving some skillful, useful attention to something, because maybe what's arisen needs a little attention, or maybe we see, actually, not needed, didn't really need to stop here, just get back on track and, you know, come back into that quality of conscious presence, of connection, of awareness and mindful attention to what's happening. Coming into that. And then seeing what comes, it's as though we are visited, like the sense of uh, being at home, that this quality of presence is a place we can learn to be at home, the sense of being connected and awake is somewhere we can learn to abide. And yet, while we're at home, there's a visitor knocks on the door. And 
the habitual tendency is to do one of two things. We either think somehow that what's coming in at the door is me and we give them the keys to the house and leave them to it. It's like there's some craving arises and we think, yeah, I really want that thing, whatever it is, our mind is just conjured up. And we start thinking about how we can get it, what will happen if we don't get it and all that. And it's like we become overwhelmed by the experience. We lose our ground through identifying with, kind of like somehow forgetting that our home is in this moment and being present and being awake and abandoning that to the reactivity, to the the energy of that particular experience that's arising, whatever it might be. It might be restlessness and we kind of just sit there. And it's not so much that we... Um, identify with it, give it to the keys. It's more like we sort of try and slam the door and stop it coming in. You're not coming in. We're sitting there fighting against it. But again, when we're fighting against something at the door, we're not at home. We can't rest anymore. It's like we're sort of scared or we've lost the sense of confidence in some way in the ability to rest, the ability to connect, the ability to meet and open to each moment, to each experience, whatever it is. And what happens, of course, is when we try and push it away, when we won't let it in, is that it tends to get more insistent. It starts knocking on the window. We say, I will not think about lunch. I will not think about lunch. I will not think about lunch. I wonder what's for supper. You know, it's sort of like the mind slips off into something else. Or maybe I should go and do some walking inside that ni- in that nice sunny patch, we think. And, and they're kind of craving that pull towards something pleasurable because we wouldn't let ourselves think about lunch. Go somewhere else. And so we're not dealing with the energy of it. And kind of interestingly, when I arrived home, um, I think it was about half past 12, and uh, I was kind of been reflecting on the journey home, and then I, okay, I want to sit down and gather my thoughts. And um, one of our cats, we have the two rather lovely cats, and uh, Blue, the, uh, the boy cat, really seems to like attention. He really likes being cuddled. And we've been away, I've been away for, you know, 28 hours, I guess, not much more than a day, left yesterday morning. And he comes up and he jumps onto my you know, lap when I'm sitting down, and I think oh, he's sort of walking over my notes, he's sort of purring and all this, and my thought is, okay, I'll hold him a little bit, and I think, well, I can't work on this while he's in my hands. So then I put him out the door, and he's sort of at the door, and so I let him in. And I thought, it's like this is a hindrance. Here it is, I'm trying to think about this theme and here's one coming in, attempting to somehow, well, not attempting, succeeding at getting in the way. What do I need to do? So I thought, okay, well, you know what you're supposed to do, just let it be and look at it. So when he jumped onto my lap, rather than cuddling him or stroking him, I just let him be on my lap. I didn't try and throw him out the door or sort of smooch up to him. And he sat on my lap for a while, purred a bit, then he started looking at the notes, then he sat on the window sill, and it's like, oh, yeah. It's kind of like that, isn't it, when we practice? That if we can see whatever's coming in, and not immediately think this thing's a problem, I better cuddle it so it'll go away, or throw it out the door so it won't bother me, just let it do what it's doing, and wanted some attention, but when I didn't get too involved with Blue, he got interested in something else pretty soon. Hindrances are like that. Difficult things that arise are often like that. What we need to do is actually connect with ourselves. And let it be. See that there's space. Space is one of these miraculous things that is never absent, 
but it's oh so easy to not notice because it's not doing anything. It's not sort of waving its arms at us saying, hey, look at me. But space is, I mean, it has many things to offer, but one of the things is when we can recognize there's a possibility for more than just one quality to be present in the moment. So there might be some, you know, I think uh, my cat was pretty much in craving mode there, you know, give me some cuddling. Where were you last night when the fireworks were going off, you know? So I'm sort of feeling a little bit guilty, going, I should have been there, he's probably scared, first fireworks night, all on his own. Um, And all of that goes on, but it's like, huh, so there's craving, there's this wanting. And yet there's also the space to just let it want. It's okay. I've cuddled him a bit, he's all right. And then something else can happen, something else shifts, then it's like, oh, okay. Then I actually realise, yeah, I can actually work on my talk with this cat on my lap or on the windowsill. It's not a problem. That capacity for reflection is still there. But so long as the cat was a problem and in the way, I couldn't. And that is the key. If in your mind you start to believe that the presence of fear or aversion, the presence of restlessness or sleepiness is making it impossible for you to practice, then it's become a hindrance. But the hindrance is in the belief, not in the arising of the experience. If we can start to separate those two out, then again, there's the space to work with it. And of course, sometimes it's not a hindrance to our practice, but it becomes the material for our practice in that moment because we need to attend to it. And other times it can really just be put to one side. And so the hindrances have their power in the sense of distorting how we see or fail to see what is true. One aspect of that is our ability to see the space that's there, the capacity we have to refocus or reconnect with our deeper intention of practice. But also because we we get caught up in the energies themselves. And those energies are by their very nature distortive or distorting of our capacity to see clearly. And where we can reconnect with our capacity to see clearly is in seeing that clearly. So being really clear that right now my ability to see is being distorted by the arising of this this fear, this sort of, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do this, or this, you know, feeling upset by something, or angry about something, or just drowsiness, and sort of, oh, you know, I think I need to sleep for a whole week, you know. That, 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 if we can see that the story arising together with the fear, it's like a feeling of drowsiness, oh, I need to sleep, I need to sleep. Oh, that's the story of drowsiness. And then, Rather than believing that it's true that I need to sleep for a week, maybe a little while I might need to sleep, but not a whole week, then we're actually back in the place of clarity that sees, ah, that's what's happening. And part of what's happening is some unclarity, but I can see it. And then my response, my engagement is born out of that seeing, not out of a reaction to the distortion
I can remember for a while in practice there was a certain school of uh, approach to the hindrances that said pretty much, well, you know, if you've done a few retreats by now, and certainly most of you have done that, um, you know, once you get over all of that stuff, you should just, you know, get calm, go deep, that's what we're here for. And uh, the sort of the idea that maybe, you know, dealing with hindrances, it's sort of like kindergarten work. Um, you know, it's not the real thing, and attractive as that idea is, because it sounds like, you know, it'd be nice for us to graduate from that particular territory quite soon and, you know, get to go to the real, the real thing, um, I don't think it's really like that. I don't think it's really like that. And we need to be open to encountering again and again in our journey these particular energies as we deepen more and more subtle levels and expressions of those qualities and what stimulates or conditions them to come into into being gets touched and needs to be worked with, needs to be digested. So it's kind of useful to, to not be judging one's practice at all by the presence or in fact the absence of these but more how you work with them. There's a there's a great story uh, I uh, remember hearing of a, a very experienced meditator of uh, some 20 years committed practice having a, a very uh, precious individual interview with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama and he was really happy to have this opportunity he, was, he told His Holiness about his many years of practice and his retreats and his study and his commitment and then uh, he said to His Holiness about the particular areas where he struggled in his meditation practice and uh, different things that were hard for him and the story goes that His Holiness looked at him with great compassion. He said, you know, it's like that in the early years of practice. <laughs> and there's something I find delightfully liberating and freeing about, ah, oh, the first 20, they're the early years, you know. You know, there's sort of like this vast vision of the potential of practice and no sense of a rush, you know, no sense of urgency. Just, ah. So, giving ourselves the, the space to acknowledge that perhaps, you know, the first few lifetimes might be the early years of practice. And of course we don't know how many of those we've had, how much practice we might have done before this lifetime, but even in this lifetime, the tendency to measure our practice by the absence or the presence of particular experience is the attempt to somehow impose a materialistic worldview onto something that can't really be captured from that perspective, can't really be clearly addressed. So to see the presence of hindrances as part of the journey, to see that we will continue to be challenged and to frame them in terms of dharma practice, which means to frame them in terms of understanding that there is suffering and its cause, that there is an end of that suffering and there is the path of practice that leads to this or the way of engaging with experience that leads to this. And so whatever comes to look and see how does that framework apply to this? 
when any of the hindrances arise, there's a suffering inherent in it because when we either identify with it, believing this is really who and what I am in this moment and there is nothing else and it will continue forever, as we sometimes do, or when we're struggling, battling, fighting with it, somehow trying to get rid of it, feeling I can't have this, I won't let this arise, it's not okay. What happens is we disconnect from our experience because we're not, we disconnect from a sense of presence, of immediacy. And that is the suffering. So the hindrance isn't in itself so usefully understood as causing suffering, which makes it sound like a problem. It actually is suffering when we're in it. It is suffering. And therefore it requires a compassionate attention to it in order to be resolved. Not a judgment or a rejection not a collapsing, a fearful collapsing in front of or into, but a compassionate recognition that, oh, this is suffering. And check it out, I'm sure you know, but to be caught in the grip of those qualities, those tendencies of mind and habits of being, or becoming, in fact, habits of becoming, is painful, it's deeply painful, deeply unsatisfying. We know this. So bringing compassionate attention to the experience. Like, I guess in a way with what happened with my cat this, this morning, this afternoon. It's like just to see the initial responses of, oh yeah, I've got to hold on to this thing, or oh, I've got to get rid of this thing. And just, ah, oh, let it be. Let it be. And seeing that its nature is to arise and to pass. All things come and go. Remembering this, this that we forget in the grasping hold of or the rejecting. Having come, having arisen according to conditions, it must pass. It will and must change into something else as conditions change. And so we learn to work with and to feel the energy of these particular qualities rather than having to be carried away by the story that they produce, by the, the image or the perception that they create in the mind that is a distortion, that is not actually true. Whereas the energy of them, the actual felt experience, is true. It's like, it feels like this, that's true. There's no distortion in the fact that anger feels like hot and tightened sometimes sort of inflated. There's no distortion. That's actually what anger feels like. But the idea that therefore I have to go and tell that person right now that they had better not ever again walk in my walking path, that's a distortion because that actually isn't necessary. Probably wouldn't be helpful. It involves all sorts of delusions, starting with the idea that that's my walking path as opposed to a piece of grass I was walking on yesterday today but so quickly it happens or that I'm walking on right now and that gives me the right to own it and claim it and that person shouldn't have walked in front of me or that close to me that's where the distortion happens so look at these qualities where they arise see them it's craving to notice how there's the sense of being pulled 
pulled towards. And again, to feel the energetic quality, it's like we get pulled off balance, we get pulled out of our centeredness into a sense of the future, often, of somehow producing or sustaining an experience, generating or continuing an experience that we like, that we enjoy, that we wish for, that we find pleasing or flattering or pleasurable. And it's somehow born out of a feeling in the present moment that what is here isn't quite enough. So we start remembering things we enjoyed that were more entertaining, delicious, stimulating, exciting, or spiritually uplifting or flattering, like you know, the last time we had a good meditation. And gosh, that was days ago, if not weeks or years. And here am I with a muddled mind. I wish my mind was calm. And it's craving. It's like this experience, this kind of ordinary human sitting here, sometimes mindful of the breath, the body, sometimes lost. That's not okay. That's not enough. And so we start looking for something that's going to entertain us or stimulate us. We start remembering things that did so in the past and therefore imagining how we can produce them in the future. And then we're pulled out of the centre, out of the sense of centeredness. And there's no centre as a physical, specific location. It's, it's, it's more a verb than a, would it be a noun or a something else? It's centeredness. It's sort of like a quality which we lose when we're pulled out into the future trying to revive, trying to prolong pleasant experience, whatever it might be. And there's something kind of tragic that happens as well, which is, I mean, first of all, to notice that being pulled out of your centre, that you're not really there, and how there's a, a disconnection inherent in that. And the feeling, the, the story, the fantasy of craving is that if I get the thing or keep the thing that I want, then, ah, I'll really be able to relax. I'll really be able to land. I'll be here. I'll be satisfied. But the dissatisfaction isn't the lack of the thing we're craving. It's actually that disconnection that it's provoked. And the satisfaction that comes with getting it is only because momentarily we land right here. Ha, ah, got it. But in the next moment, we start looking for something else. Even if we get the thing we wanted. moment of calm arises after... Hours of agitation. It's like, oh, I'm calm. That was great. How long is it going to last? What if it doesn't stay very long? What if it turns into agitation again? And we realize, of course, we're agitated already and it's gone. That grasping just comes around again. So the sufferings and the disconnection and the getting pulled out by the idea that the thing is actually the basis of satisfaction when it's never the thing itself. And the tragedy of it, the ironic tragedy of it, is that when we're caught in that pattern, we can't actually really enjoy the thing that's here. It might be quite lovely or delightful. I remember first encountering this, and this was before I'd been involved in Dharma practice, when I, for the first time, um, had a camera. It actually was my father's, and I was... Um, taking some time to travel around New Zealand and spend time in the wilderness. And it was really quite fun taking pictures of things. I'd never done it before. It was like seagulls, trees, people, me on my bicycle. I was cycling around. And then I started to notice sometimes that I'd be in this beautiful place, these amazing views or scenes or situations. And I'd be frustrated because I couldn't get a good picture of it. And I was, the light was wrong. The angle wasn't right. I didn't have the lens I needed. And I was kind of like... Mm. And, and I realized, wow, that's really sad. I'm not enjoying myself. This is beautiful. 
but because I can't get away to take it home and show it to my friends or remember it later, I can't do it. So I actually got rid of the camera because at that point I didn't have any other way to deal with that particular thing. I just get rid of it. It's like the, you know, the sort of the unsophisticated renunciate process is just if it's causing a problem, cut it out. And sure, there's a value to that sometimes. There's a, some of that we do here. But the, the movement of trying to keep it stops us enjoying it. And another, for me, sort of like classic experience of that in the context of a retreat, it was actually at the old house in Denbury, the, the old guy house, where one day when I was in the middle of a retreat of uh, not quite sure how long, several weeks, um, one of the managers who was cooking that day cooked lasagna. And it's kind of like, Wow, this is one of my favourite foods, and there it was, you know. And I smelt it as I was cooking, I was walking mindfully, almost mindfully, up and down in front of the kitchen windows on the lawn. And then I knew it's lasagna. And so it was served, and I got reasonably close to the front of the line without looking like I was rushing too much, you know, just trying to be meditative about it. Um, and then I was serving myself this portion, thinking, how much is moderation? Uh, you know, that much. I'll, I'll be moderate, I'll be moderate, I'll come back and get seconds. I'll come back and get some seconds, that'll be great, yeah. Good moderation and seconds, yeah. And I was sort of so excited by this lasagna, and it was good, I sat down, and it was yum. But then I was thinking, but what if there's not enough for seconds? And I'm sort of shoveling it in. What if there isn't enough for seconds? It's all going to run out. <coughs> um... And I got to the end of this... Actually, it wasn't moderate at all. It was quite a large plate of lasagna I'd taken. And I was <laughs> stuffed. And I was like, oh, I didn't want seconds. I don't even actually think I went and looked to see if there was seconds. But because I'd been so worried about getting seconds, I had not enjoyed that meal. It was really sad. You know, I loved this stuff, and I had not been able to enjoy it. One mouthful that was yum, and then... Oh. And it was kind of like I was... I was actually in pain. Not only did I fail to enjoy the lasagna, not get a second helping, but I was in pain. I was like, oh, you know. Fortunately, at that point, some mindfulness kicked in, and it was like, oh, you, you know, you poor fool, basically, but in a friendly way. What did you do that for? You know, you could have actually enjoyed half as much lasagna, taking twice as long, and really tasted it every time. And you know, if they serve lasagna, I try and do that on retreat and sometimes I actually succeed which is wonderful but to see that mind of gimme 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 more 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 and how ultimately it's empty it doesn't do it for us so it doesn't mean don't enjoy it when something lovely comes you're walking outside you see you know one of the squirrels in the trees or a bird fluttering or just something that touches you or in the meditation there's just a sweet ripple of sensation up through the body or just a sense of the stillness the mind just goes and it sort of like just relaxes and we just sense ah, oh, yeah that's nice that sense of release and just huh, enjoy it allow yourself to be touched by that and notice when your mind moves into the future how do I keep this? Into the past, what did I do to get it? Into the future, how shall I replicate what I did to keep to get it? And then, no, just here, just here. And if the energy of craving arises, feel it. Like, notice there's a sort of this pull. Sometimes you feel it in your hands. It's like these organs of grabbing. 
You know, very useful at times, but they sort of give me. And to work with that. To see the arising of aversion, that sense of, I don't want, I will not accept, I cannot endure. And how we, when we encounter something that's uncomfortable, excuse me, or difficult or painful or scary or just unflattering, doesn't make us look good, the tendency is to want to push it away, to get rid of it, somehow. And either we tend to shrink into ourselves, we tend to shrink and freeze up, we kind of have a more fear response that we're trying to pull away from it. And we kind of notice how in that there's a certain tightening, a certain constricting, hardening. Or we kind of somehow inflate, we get angry, we think that shouldn't be going on, that's not okay. They should not have been, you know, moving on their cushion in the meditation or just when I was getting calm and now they've disturbed my meditation. Don't worry, probably no one thought that when you moved. Don't, don't, don't need to be concerned. It's actually... Well, maybe they did, I don't know. But uh, that whole way we can get angry. And yet, what happens in that? It's like there's this heat and there's this... Sense, I've, got to, I've got to put a note up. I'm going to tell people... Look, you know, they said at the beginning... The teacher said, you know, be calm and quiet and peaceful in the meditation or something like that. I think they probably said. You know, why aren't we doing it? Who isn't doing it? Or who's turned up late for the sitting? You know? Hmm. I mean, I've certainly turned up late for settings. I guess probably some of you have as well. And I've also been irritated with other people who turned up late for settings. Why are they turning up late for settings? See, we do both. And then we turn up late for the sitting and we feel kind of afraid that someone else is going to be irritated with me for being late because I was irritated with everybody else when they were. And there's this whole thing that goes on and on and on. That's just around getting to the hall, let alone what happens when we've got our butt on the cushion. So to see, with with craving, there's a sense of just, you know, don't follow that illusion that it's going to do it for you. With aversion, the illusion, the distortion is that if this is here, I can't practice, I can't be present, I can't be happy. In the presence of this experience, the pain in my knee, that me, 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 me in my mind, or whatever else it might be, if that's happening... I can't practice. My retreat is being ruined. I'm going to leave at the end of the month and just feel so miserable because I haven't managed to meditate even for a moment because of this horrible experience that's happening to me. I wish it would go away. I'm going to make it go away. All of that. That's the distortion. The idea that it's in the way. Because again, if you manage to get rid of the thing that's annoying, the mind shuts up and then it stops. And it's kind of like, oh, that's nice. There's not much happening. Oh, this is boring. Is this all that happens? And there's something else that turns into a problem. In fact, the opposite of what seemed to be the problem before. It happens so many times, doesn't it? You know, sitting there with pain. Oh, I wish my knee didn't hurt. My back, oh, my back. Oh, I wish my back and my knee didn't hurt. And then back and the knee stop hurting and we realize they were the only thing keeping us awake. You know, and we fall asleep. How many times does that happen? And yet we keep thinking that the pain is the problem. Sure, we need to attend to it. We might need to give some care and maybe some adjustment or some other response needed. But the idea that this experience is in the way, that is the distortion. 
and the conclusion that essentially is along the lines of I cannot be present while this is present. So if it's here, I'm gone. That's what happens. We leave. We depart. We kind of lose our seat. We abandon our place of connection because we feel that we can't be there with this. I will not be there with this. And with practice, learning to accommodate, learning to meet, learning to be with the difficult, we start to discover that, oh, actually, it really hurts sometimes. Sometimes my body really aches in meditation. Sometimes my heart, it can feel really, ooh, tender. Sometimes my mind just is really upset. Sort of, mm-hmm. But actually, I can still be here with that experience. Perhaps everything around me is all sort of busy and, you know. But actually, I can be here with that. That experience is difficult, but it doesn't mean I can't be present. It doesn't mean I can't connect. And when we see through that, then again, rather than becoming an obstacle, the arising of the difficult becomes raw material for deepening. For deepening our understanding of our reactivity, for deepening our confidence, deepening our confidence in the practice and our ability to inhabit this moment that is always here for us, that never abandons us. We abandon it. But it's always here. We only need to remember to turn back, to reconnect. I mean, has anyone ever noticed that when they came back, the moment was, wasn't there for them? I mean, where could it go? It's we that leave. And we're not obliged to. And again, with aversion, seeing how it pulls us into the past and the future. How we start, when there's something arising in the present that's difficult, we start to think, what did I do that caused this? Was it during the work period I was lifting heavy things and now my back hurts? Maybe that's what. Maybe it's too much sitting. That's why my back hurts. It was those mattresses. No, those mattresses. You know, we start thinking, how am I going to get a better mattress? I mean, maybe one doesn't have a great mattress. I haven't slept on them all recently in the house, but some of them are better than others, I guess. Um, but the idea that somehow it's out there, it's not that maybe there isn't some external cause for our experience that we could attend to, but that in this moment, Going into the past, what's the problem? And into the future, how will I solve it? Leads to a disconnection. Because right now while I'm sitting on this cushion, I'm not going to sort out whether it's actually the mattress that's the problem. What I need to do is sort out what's going on in my mind. What's going on in my mind right now? And so it's like, oh, it's happening right now. That thing that I'm afraid of or that I'm angry about, that's an experience that's happening right here. It seems to be about something else, but it's actually happening right here. Can I be with this? This fear, this anger, this experience. And then again, oh, even in the presence of this, there is the access to the possibility of being awake, being connected. And that quality of connection is ultimately and profoundly more significant than the discomfort or the 
And sometimes it can be extra. I'm not trying to suggest it's just sometimes, you know, little tickles and irritation. Sometimes it can be really hard. Physical, emotional, psychological processes and energies. But it's the disconnection that's the deeper suffering, again. And we can be present with it. With the difficult. So the next of the hindrances is restlessness. And restlessness is, again, useful to recognize, to identify. It's like an imbalance of energy. It's like we've got too much energy, not enough calm, not enough spaciousness to contain it. So the feeling is of being pulled out of one's place. It's like you know having ants in your pants is the kind of rather... I think, sweet expression sometimes used. I don't know, so much in England, but uh, ants in your pants. It's like, mm, 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 mm. keep it on moving. And what restlessness needs is to be held, to be given a container in which it can be held. It can be useful just to check in and notice if there's any contraction when restlessness is arising, because we tend to tighten around it. It's not comfortable. It can be really uncomfortable at times. And when we tighten, there's not enough space. So actually give it space, like breathe out. With restlessness, really useful to give more attention to your out-breath, the relaxing quality of out-breath, and just sense the space around you, sense the, the air, and the, there's, there's, there's plenty of space, much more so than we sometimes imagine. And really, stay with it. Restlessness is useful to meet with a real commitment to stay there. And sometimes what's useful for that is to really just check the posture is upright and just say, okay, I'm not going to move. Or standing meditation is really useful sometimes with restlessness because it's quite energized, but it's also quite still. So it gives that energy something to work with. (coughs) And uh, sometimes call standing meditation the posture of no escape. It's like there's something about it that's just really solid for dealing with restlessness, for working with restlessness. So that can be helpful sometimes. But the the key thing with it is to just really face it. Face the experience. As uh, Catherine sometimes says, uh, when we're teaching together, I really enjoy her particular take on it. She sometimes says or to, to her yogis working with it, she says, see if you could be the first meditator to die of restlessness. And it's like, yeah, you know, it's not going to kill you. Well, if it did, you would be the first, and that would be, you know, maybe worth it. But take the risk, because basically what restlessness says is, do something, do something about this, do something about this right now. That's its story. The story of restlessness is that something's got to be done. Maybe I've got to adjust my posture, I've got to sit this way, that way, this leg, that leg, this... Uh, uh. Or I've got to go, oh, my mind, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to sort out my room, I've got to work out my schedule, I've got to figure out, am I doing samatha or am I doing vipassana, should I do some metta, how about some just, uh, you know, simply being, all of that. No, 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 no. Restless mind. See if you can sense what the energy of it is. Because restlessness is about energy that's out of balance, too much energy. 
And you can feel it in your body. It's like all of that. Often it arises out of the past, out of perhaps remorse or guilt over difficult or um, unfortunate circumstances one was involved in or actions one might have taken that one regrets. It can arise out of a sense of fear or anxiety or excitement about future possibilities that one either fears or hopes for. And we're sort of caught up with trying to somehow sort it out. It can also just arise out of too much enjoyment or too much investigation of your wholesome qualities. Joy and investigation are wholesome qualities, but if they're not balanced with a certain degree of calm and grounded in the body, they can lead to a sort of a over-amplification of the energy because it's enjoyable in that case. And that leads to restlessness sometimes. But mostly just be there. You don't have to figure it out. Just recognize it, name it. Oh, this is restlessness. And be there with it. It's noticing the clock and realizing how long I've been talking. Maybe you're getting some of the hindrances as we go. Um, restlessness after about 40 minutes. Yeah, that's fair enough. That happens. It's okay. Um, if you need to change your posture, you can. Likewise with restlessness. Sometimes one needs to make an adjustment. Because the other thing that gives rise to restlessness sometimes is trying too hard. If we're pushing too hard, it's too much effort, not balanced by a sense of just allowing. And it can lead to restlessness. That energy kind of gets wired, wired up. But the other, and the next uh, hindrance, and again, this one might be turning up now, it's about, you know, two, three hours since lunch, and uh, the old... Uh, Drowsiness sometimes kicks in, sleepiness, heaviness, dullness. It's like that idea of restlessness and too much energy. It seems like, wow, that's another planet. You know, it's like it's just, and we kind of just feel the the brightness of the mind just sort of turning into something sludgy and sticky and heavy and sort of dark. And it has a story as well. You know, it's that story of tiredness, of drowsiness, of sloth is, I need to sleep. I need to rest. I've got to lie down. I can't do this anymore. And it's sort of seductive. It's sort of sweet. Sort of like, yeah, that sounds good. Um, And, you know, it's not a bad experience in itself. It can be really difficult if we're trying to be bright and alert and it's happening. It's like, ah, but, you know, if it's actually time to go to bed, or have a nap, and you get this nice wave of soft, relaxed, sort of, mm. the energetic quality of it's really pleasurable in that moment because you don't have to fight it. Because you're actually allowed to go to sleep right now. It's not a problem. And the absence of that really soft, sort of, in a way, enfolding inside, it's like a sense of enfolding into oneself or into the, sort of, the moment that happens with it. If it doesn't happen when you want to go to sleep, it's really unpleasant, isn't it? So it's subjective, it's according to the context, whether it fits in our view of what should be happening or not, that drowsiness is either unpleasant and difficult or actually rather delightful and welcome. And so, you know, the Buddha spoke a lot about working with drowsiness. This is something that uh, all of us as meditators encounter at different times. And there's lots of different responses. With drowsiness, it's a lack of energy. And what's useful 
is to engage with it. First of all, to recognize it. It's always the first thing enable, to enable a skillful response is to recognize it, to name it. Say, oh, drowsiness. It might be like, oh, oh drowsiness, okay. You know, but then drowsiness, yes, be clear. And then it needs a response and an engagement. And it can be that we engage on the level of just remembering what we're here for, like bringing forth some of our sense of aspiration, our commitment, our resolve for practice, like I'm really here to be present, I'm not here to fall asleep. And there can also be ways in which we can support that with our body. What I find with drowsiness, and I have quite some experience with this particular one, um, it seems, for better or worse, is that almost always it requires a response that's active. I remember discovering, and for years I wondered about whether I should ever say this in a Dharma talk. I'm not going to suggest that it's a good idea, but I do remember discovering at some point during a long retreat in America, actually, I think it was about 10 years ago or 12, um, that uh, sexual fantasies were extremely effective at dealing with drowsiness. <laughs> And I actually played for a little while with the idea of just trying to get the energy rising and then cut off the story. <laughs> sometimes one could do that and sometimes it just became a different hindrance. So I'm definitely not recommending that one to you, but it's kind of interesting to explore what works because that's really the key to this, what works for you. What I find is actually the most effective thing usually is to establish a sense of uprightness in the posture in terms of subtle work, just straightening the posture, attuning more to the in-breath, which is the alivening, energizing, brightening quality of the mind, of the breath cycle, sorry. And that supports the mind. So just that attunement to the in-breath and not so much attention to the out-breath when you're drowsy, heavy, sleepy or dull. Because the, the wave of energy in the out-breath is towards releasing and falling asleep. It's where, we, it's where it happens usually, is in that aspect of the breath cycle. So just give more attention to the in-breath. And if that in kind of subtle adjustment isn't useful, there's plenty of other things the Buddha spoke about. So with resolve, aspiration, remembering what inspires us to practice, reflecting on the, you know, the dangers of uh, being asleep and all that, which is you know, a metaphor in practice for living our life overwhelmed by suffering and not being asleep is about freedom. So a very direct metaphor connected with a sense of sleepiness. But what's often really useful is to do something, like sit up more straight, open the eyes. And what I find really helpful, arms above the head, so that the, the torso is really opened, extended, elbows are up. On group, You don't have to do this, but on group retreats, I make everyone do this when I give this instruction so that no one will feel embarrassed about doing it afterwards. Because if you've all done it, then we all look silly, it doesn't matter. At the moment, probably, I just look silly, so hopefully that won't be a bar to you, that you'll look silly too. Actually, it's not that silly because everyone else has got their eyes shut, right? And if they're looking around, they're in no position to comment. And by making a physical effort, it gets to be hard work after a little while. It brings energy and brightness to the mind. It can also be useful to check and ask yourself, am I in need of some rest? Because sometimes we arrive, and particularly at the beginning of a retreat, in a condition of energy debt, like we're putting out and consuming more energy than we're taking in and receiving. And we're effectively undernourished energetically. And we feel that because we stop and then we start to fade. 
sometimes what we need to do is take more rest, give ourselves a little bit of a break. And interestingly, the Buddha, after listing, you know, I'm not sure, was it eight or ten different things you can do, the last thing he says is, take a nap. It's one of the options. It's right there in the text. Taravadan as all the rest of them. You know? The really keen, hard-nosed guys and girls, men and women who, you know, sat on rocks under trees two and a half thousand years ago. Sometimes they took a rest and had a nap when they were drowsy. I think it's great to remember that. And the other thing that I find uh, vaguely amusing and possibly uh, not intentionally disrespectful, so I just want to say that because I have immense respect for the Buddha, but uh, one of the things he suggests, and I've never found this particularly useful for myself, but the Buddha suggested when you're drowsy, pull your ears, your earlobes. And if you've, I sometimes wondered when playing with this suggestion whether drowsiness was something he had to work with a lot because if you look at any images of the Buddha... <laughs> You know, you just kind of wonder, well, what happened there? The other question to ask is, is there something I'm avoiding with drowsiness? Because fading into unconsciousness is the last escape route when we cut every other one off. It's just like, whoop, I'm out of here. And just leave the question open. Is there something I'm avoiding in my experience? There may be something that comes to mind, there may be not, but just be open to it, be curious. So the fifth of the hindrances, which I'm just really going to touch briefly because I've turned out to have a lot more to say than I had in mind, um, is uh, doubt, sceptical doubt, or a sense of a um, a sort of a resigned or hopeless doubt that negates a sense of possibility. So there's a quality of doubt that's useful that's more a reflective, curious, interested, well, I'm not sure. I'm going to check this out. That kind of doubt is not a hindrance. But the kind of doubt that says, oh, I can't do it, it's no good, practice is no good, I'm no good can really stop us if we believe it. And it's important, again, to see that this arises. It happens to all of us on practice, in practice at times. And what we need to actually just say is, that's doubt. It's not the truth. It's, again, got a story that says it's not possible for me or not possible now or not possible in these conditions or with these teachers or these teachings. But it's just a reaction and it often arises together with or consequent upon one of the other ones because we feel like the other one is somehow evidence that our practice isn't working and then we start to think I can't do it and then we feel hopeless and we might give up it's doubt see it clearly the Buddha experienced doubt on the night before he awoke to his full enlightenment in the personification of Mara saying what right have you got to be sitting here committing to be awakened. It's, it's doubt, that question arising. And the Buddha famously touching the earth, expressing his faith, is what we need to bring in the face of doubt sometimes, faith, and his right to be there. But not to form the view that the arising of hindrance is evidence that practice is going badly. 
because on the very night before he awakened, the Buddha faced all of them in one form or another. And so if it should be that today or tomorrow you're facing these hindrances, it could be that the next day awakening dawns. And so, to face, to be with, to open to, to see them come and go, as they do, and to see that the space is here, in which they can be received, and from which we do not need to become alienated by their presence. And then, the very natural radiance and luminosity of the awakened mind can be revealed equally in and through the presence of the challenging and difficult conditions we experience as it can be revealed in their absence. So, I'll finish there. Let's just sit for a moment. May we all, through our practice, deepen in skillful meeting of challenges that arise along the way. And may we abide and trust in the luminosity of the awakened mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.